You're listening to a sermon from New City Fellowship in Manassas, Virginia. New City Fellowship is a diverse community that proclaims the gospel and makes disciples for the glory of God and the renewal of our city. For more information, visit newcityfellowship.net. Hebrews 2, starting in verse 5. All right, this is God's word. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with a glory and honor, putting everything in subjugation under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjugation to him, he has left nothing outside of his control. At present... We do not yet see everything in subjugation to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things existed, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children of God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who is the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to, a, to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he, therefore he has had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For for because he himself has suffered, when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is God's word. Thanks, Lewis. Well, good morning, New City. It is great to be with you all. Uh, I've actually been following your journey since you planted, what was it, four, five years? Five years ago. Um, yeah, when I was at serving as, at another church, Portico Arlington. And so it's just a gift to be with you guys here for the first time in person and to fill in for Will. Uh, you know, being two years behind Will as a planter, I've run into him a couple of times at RTS, the seminary uh, that we go to. And he's been such a help to me as someone who's gone before me, you know, if you will, in the church planting journey. And uh, I figured while I'm here, I actually have a confession to make. I haven't told any of the staff this, but so when we when our church planted two years ago in Arlington, I'm not the most creative person. And so, you know, our team was asking, you know, so how do you want us to, you know, set up the like, communion stations and what materials should we get? And I was like, well, I've seen some pretty beautiful things on New City's social media, so why don't you just look at their social media and copy what they do? So, sorry, that's my shameless apology. We have that exact uh, communion cup holder, pretty sure, but um, I'll have to copy those Edison bulbs over there. Those are pretty cool. Anyway, um, 
Let's, uh, let's look at the passage. So we're in Hebrews, and we're in Hebrews because our church, we just started Hebrews. Um, it's been such an encouragement to me, and so just wanted to share with you guys a passage that we just went through as a church. And so uh, one of the things that Hebrews is really helpful for is it's helpful for us to avoid a, you could call it a Christ-centered deism. And what I mean by that is sometimes with God, you know, how we think of him, if you've heard them put as like the watchmaker God. So he's a God who, he made the world and he just set things into motion. And now as we live, he's not a living and active and relational God, but just sort of in a vague way, he watches over us and wants us to be happy. But we can do the same thing with Jesus. Um, because with Jesus, right, we I think we can often think of him as only a historical figure, and he's certainly nothing less than that, but I think often we think of him, okay, he, yeah, even if I believe he was God, he came, he, he did some stuff, he lived, he died, he rose again, but then he just set some things into motion, and he's no longer living for me and with me as a present help. And so that's what we're gonna look at today is this, the beauty of Christ being our present help as a human being. Uh, the first chapter of Hebrews, it looks like why Jesus is such a glorious present help because he's God. But I think for a lot of us, we do, today we're gonna look at that he's God, but for many of us, it's not that significant that he's human. And so today we're gonna look at why does it matter so much? Like why is it vital? that Christ is fully human in addition to being fully God. And so what we'll do is we'll look at this under three headings as we walk through the passage. Uh, in Jesus' humanity, we see he's, first, he's the king who frees us. Uh, number two, he's the friend who understands us. And number three, he's the brother who likes us. Okay, so he's the king who frees us, he's the friend who understands us, and he's the brother who likes us. So first, number one, he's the king who frees us. Let's start in verse six. If you have your Bible, um, you can follow along with me. So verse six, it's been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him, that's speaking of men and women, you made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. Fully human, his point here is he's giving us context so that we remember that there is a storyline and a purpose to history. History is not a tale told by an idiot filled with sound and fury signifying nothing, as Macbeth says, but there's actually a poetic storyline to history that's going somewhere with Christ as the story's climax and hero. And that's what he's getting at here. And so how he sets the scene is, verse seven, you made him, men and women, for a little while lower than the angels. You put everything in subjection under his feet. So that phrase, in subjection, that can sound weird. Just think, what this is saying is God has tasked human beings uniquely compared to any other living thing with the privilege of putting everything in subjection or another way you could put that is creating order out of chaos in creation. Right, so he tasked us with doing things like creating systems of agriculture for food, or systems of government for safety and order within society. But not just to do this in kind of a, a job, you know, burdensome, begrudging way, but in a way that gives us joy and God glory. God wants us to steward the material world so that we have physical pleasure, so that we can do things like go on a walk on a fall evening after a dinner so that we can create things like art and music that stir the blood to behold, so that we can la like enjoy the simple pleasures of laughing with friends in a living room. Like God ordered these things so that we can enjoy these things, but then what do we see at the end of verse eight? At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. And what this is, it's the author of Hebrews' simple, simple reason. We look around the world 
it doesn't seem like everything is in order, right? It often seems like creation has rule over us, then we have rule over creation. So not everybody gets to enjoy a simple walk on a fall evening after a meal. Not everyone gets to enjoy the laughter of friends in a living room. I mean, as we speak today, there are tens of millions of human beings being trafficked, one of four of whom are children. We're facing what I think is the greatest refugee crisis of our time, over 70 million people. And then not to mention, you know, the chaos that we feel within, right? The heartbreak of relationships in our families or our friends that don't go as we wish or our own personal demons where we wonder, you know, if someone really saw me for who I really am, would I be lovable? And so as the author continues in verse nine, what's the answer? Verse nine, but we see him, speaking of Jesus. Okay, so the answer that God gives when you see the chaos within and you feel the, or when, you, when you see the chaos without in the world and you feel the pangs of sorrow within, the answer is not stop crying like a baby and get it together. It's also not like our modern culture often preaches, you know, you have the inner light within, and as long as you discover that, you can be happy. No, the answer comes from outside us. He says, but we see him, Jesus. And so the answer God gives to our suffering isn't, or the hardships of the world, it's not pull it together. It's, no, you can acknowledge how bad things are, but Jesus is far better. And as you see him come alongside you as your king, as your friend, your brother, you'll get more comfort than you know. And so as we move forward into how Christ became a human being, um, because he here, it was supposed to be a human who would order creation because we've failed to do that as human beings because of sin, for putting ourselves in the place that only God should be. How God decides to, decides to resolve things isn't by snapping his fingers and making sin and pain go away. He resolves the tension in the story in a poetic way, in a fitting way, as verse 10, for it was fitting by sending Jesus, right? So there's an artistic resolution to the story, and we'll see how that plays out. And so as we look at these facets of Jesus and why he's the answer to everything that we're looking for, I hope you experience what I got to, and this isn't just rhetoric, like this was a, a wonderful moment for me the other week as I was looking at this passage. Uh, so there's this scene in Chronicles of Narnia, hopefully you guys have read it. If you haven't, I'm pretty sure it's gonna be required leave. And you know, Lucy, she's the youngest of four children, and she's always had this special relationship with Aslan, the great lion, who's the Christ figure. And she hasn't seen him for a few years, and then she runs into him, and he looks bigger to her. And she says, Aslan, you're bigger. And he responds, that's because you are older, little one. And she says, not because you are? And he says, I am not. But the older you get, the bigger I'll become. And you see, what Lewis is portraying there is the more we, the first time we see Jesus, sometimes it's kind of like, okay, he's kind of interesting. The, but the more we see who he really is, uh, the bigger he becomes. Uh, he never changes, but we have a greater appreciation for him. And so I, I hope for us, uh, we get to experience that as we move forward. So first, uh, how is he the king who frees us? And we see this uh, in verse 14 is one of the two main places we see that in this passage. So verse 14, it says, since therefore the children, that's us, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, that's Christ, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. So since therefore the children, human beings share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Meaning, Jesus, who's fully God, took on flesh and blood. He became a human being in every way. 
with heart, with a heart and skin and lungs. Why? Because Jesus can't be your redeemer and he can't be the king who frees you unless he takes on flesh and blood because if he doesn't take on flesh and blood, then he cannot die. It's because he, the reason Jesus became fully human, one of them, is because he had to take on a form that we could kill. He had to have a heart that we could wound. He had to have skin that we could tear. And he had to have lungs that would gasp for air as he hung on a cross. Why? Verse 9, end of verse 9, because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. What makes the death of Jesus unique in history, this isn't just the tragic death of a good dude. His death is a substitutionary death where he went to the cross in our place, as you heard Brian mention earlier uh, in, in between songs. Because the wages of sin is death, as the book of Romans tells us, the payment for worshiping created things instead of our creator, even though he ever pursues us, is, is death. And so by Jesus becoming human, it's, it's a bit like this. If you owe the bank $10,000, and you go to them and you try to pay them using like two baskets of oranges, that's not gonna go well. Why? Because the currency has to match. So by Jesus becoming a human, he dies in our place, giving us life full and free in the new creation, which we can begin to enjoy, which we can begin to enjoy today. And so what does that do for us? Um, it doesn't just give us life eternal when we die, but see what he says in verse 15. He delivers, he delivers all he delivers all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So there's this reality that every human being lives under the slavery of death. And so I know we have a, a number of young folks in this congregation um, and some older folks well too, who you probably get this uh, more than those of us who are younger, me included, but think about ways that Christ saves us from the slavery of death, not just in the long term, but in the short term, because I think in many ways, our mortality is ever we always know it's there, but we don't like to think about it. So we just kind of put it in a drawer, knowing that our life here is going to end. But it's always there churning. And so what that does is when we, when we believe functionally that this life is all we have, we place the weight of deity on things and people that are not messy, us and other people becoming so aggressive with politics. Right? Politics matter. We're not called to be passive, but when you get aggressive, and you can't even hear what somebody on the other side says. One of the reasons it's time for empathy and for listening. Okay, or you may put the weight of deity on a spouse or a child. Asking them to be someone they were never meant to be. You, know, you may place a weight on yourself or how you're supposed to look or how you're supposed to behave. In a way that you were never meant to carry when you know Christ has liberated you from that lifelong slavery, it, it frees you not to be passive because, oh, I have life eternal, but it, it frees you to be other-centered in this life because you no longer have to obsess about everything happening in the next 10, 20, or 30 years. So there's incredible ramifications for the present, but it does have ramifications for the long term too. Sorry as a guest preacher, I'm coming in here and talking about death. I mean, by definition, it's a morbid topic. I'm just trying to follow the passage, but... There will, come a, there will come a day where you are on your deathbed or you know you are going to die 
And the good news of the gospel is if you are in union with Jesus, then at that moment of death, you are not laying or standing at the threshold of loss and pain and hell, but you're standing on the threshold of white shores, green hills, a swift sunrise, and the greatest welcome home party you've ever received, where you are in deep communion with every other believer, and even more glorious, in the deepest communion possible with the one for whom you've so longed to see. And that is such good news. Is it because Jesus is fully human, he can be the king who frees us, tasting death so that we don't have to? Next, number two, we don't just see he's the king who frees us, but he's the friend who understands us. And what I love about these next two points is there's a majesty about Christ conquering death for us, right? There's a power to that. But there's an equal majesty to this king of kings, the one enthroned on heaven, stooping down and bending on one knee to come alongside us as our friend and brother. And so here what we see is the heart behind the one who understands us. And he, here, by the way, I'm, just, I'm drawing some things from my, I learned from a pastor named James Forsyth who uh, taught me a number of things on this passage, so just giving credit where credit is due. But as we look at the heart of the team, therefore he, that's Jesus, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, that's absorbing the judgment of God for us, for the sins of the people. So he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become. So there's, there's this idea that be, before Jesus became fully human, because he was always fully God, but before he, he took on human form, he couldn't be a fully merciful and faithful high priest for us. He couldn't be a fully helpful, present strength for us. So why is that? And the key is where it says he was made like his brothers in every respect. And so when Jesus became human, I mean, his whole life was suffering from the hay that prickled his baby skin to the nails that pierced his hands on the cross. His whole life was relational and physical suffering. And why this is so helpful is because he became human, like there are a few things more it's hard to feel more helpless uh, or in pain than when it just doesn't seem like anyone understands you, right? Either they don't just seem to get you who you are or you're going through some type of suffering and even the, the best of well-intended family members and friends, they just, they don't really know what you're going through. But because Jesus experienced the full range of emotion and human suffering, what this means is you don't just have a king who frees you, but you truly have a friend who understands you. So have you ever been abandoned or felt alone? He knows. Have you ever been betrayed by somebody who never should have betrayed you? He knows. Have you ever been lied about? Have you ever had anxiety? He knows. Have you ever lost a parent? He knows. From what we can tell, Jesus lost his father when he was a teenager. Have you ever prayed for something you wanted so badly to happen and the answer was no or not yet? Father, if there's any other way than me going to the cross, take this cup from me. And so, 
when the bad news comes or when you just don't know if you can take another disappointment, sometimes walking with Jesus just looks as simple as going to him in prayer and just saying something to the effect of, you know, you know. And there's such a powerful comfort. I mean, I just had to do this the other week. There's such a powerful comfort there because he actually understands you. And he doesn't just understand you in your pain, but he understands you in your temptations too. Uh, Hebrews chapter four, a couple chapters later, it tells us that even though Jesus was tempted, he was tempted without sin, right? He never sinned. And here in our passage, he says, because he suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. And this was interesting to me because, so as we think about Jesus being perfect and he never sinned, (laughs) it's like, okay, how can you really know what it's like to be me? Because my experience is often tempted, often succumbing, often failing, all the time. And so I, you know, Jesus, you never sin. so how can you actually know what it's like? And the beauty of what Hebrews is communicating to us is because of the perfection of the Christ who redeems you, because he never sinned, this doesn't remove him from your experience of temptation. It actually guarantees that no one has ever been tempted to the degree Jesus has. You know, burst in anger, do any act of selfishness, you know, entertain thoughts or act on lust, you know, act on greed, any of the above. The more we resist, the more the tension and the pressure builds and builds and builds. And so when we sin, it, does, it gives us a release valve. Right? Satan only has to bring in the little BB guns for us because we, we succumb so quickly. But Jesus never gave in at all. Imagine how badly Satan wanted Jesus to sin. Imagine how badly he wanted him to sin because one slip up and you and I are doomed. One moment of impatience with Peter, who was probably always saying the most idiotic idiotic things, and we're done. But Jesus never gave in. He felt the full weight of it, and he never gave in. Why? To bring you and me to glory so that he can help us in our suffering and our temptation because it's one thing to know a friend or to have somebody who's been through hardship like you, and that's very helpful, but it's another thing entirely to know someone who's gone through the same hardship you have and brutality and come out the other side victorious and who can say, here's where the light is, here's where hope is, and I'm with you in it. And so with Jesus in his humanity being the friend who fully understands you, what this means is you don't just have a God who sits on the throne, who has the power to help you. It means you have all the sympathy of a brother and all the compassion of a friend. Okay, so he's the king who frees you. He's the friend who understands you. And if it can't get any better, he's the brother who likes you. Uh, So we see this mainly in verse 11. He also mentions us being his brothers in verse 17, but we'll look at verse 11. So for he who sanctifies, to sanctify is to be made perfect. So for he, that's Jesus, who sanctifies, who makes us like him, and those who are being sanctified, that's us, all of one source. Okay, so for he who sanctifies Jesus, those who are sanctified, us, all of one source, meaning we all come from one stock. Quotes a few Old Testament passages just stamping in this case that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers if you're trusting in him, brothers and sisters. And so uh, 
As I was thinking about this passage, so I have two older brothers. Uh, if you could please put up the picture. You might be wondering why am I putting an embarrassing photo of myself when I was 17? It just, it, it helps, I think. So uh, that's me on the left. Yes, I'm wearing a beanie and a beaded necklace. But who didn't wear it? I mean, did you even have high school in the early 2000s if you weren't wearing a shell or a beaded necklace? Okay. And so those are my two older brothers on the right. And they are four years and six years older than me. And you know, that's a big gap when you're young. So when I was only 12, you know, when I was in sixth grade, one of them was finishing up high school and the other was already in college. But even though they were so much older than me and even though they were so much more socially adept and more cool than me, they took me under the, their wing and they hung out with me all the time. So you know, they would take me to sports practice, they would take me to the pool, they would show me secrets in video games. Uh, one of them even found this life-size X-wing fighter like in the middle of the woods somewhere, and so he blindfolded me because he didn't want me to know where it was, would be a secret, and he put me on his back and carries me through the woods. I felt like Yoda, you know, riding on Luke's back, just minus the wisdom of Yoda. And you know, he takes me to this X-wing, um, uh, my brother, he took an hour out of every afternoon that he had to train me in the sport to help me make a very selective team that summer. Uh, the brother there in the middle, when I was in college, I had to have this precarious conversation with a girl that I really liked. And he sat down with me in my 22-year-old woes and he helped show me, okay, here's how you can navigate the conversation, you know, because it's such a sensitive subject and how you can honor her even if she doesn't respond in the way that you're hoping. Uh, and I, I owe him a lot because I'm now married to her. And, you know, so these, these brothers, what meant the most to me, it wasn't just how they helped me. It wasn't even the fun that we had. And we had a lot of fun. What meant the most to me, even though I was the annoying little brother, is that they weren't ashamed of me. You know, like, even though they were so much cooler than me, they were proud to bring me alongside them to be with their friends. You know, they were proud to have me out and about with them. And because they weren't ashamed of me, because they liked me, I felt like I could take on the world. You know, it didn't matter if I got made fun of at school. It didn't matter if I didn't score as many goals as I hoped on the field. Because I knew I had these older brothers who weren't ashamed of me, I could do anything. And you know, for you, do you have somebody like this? Or perhaps more poignantly, do you wish you had somebody like this? A brother, a sister, a father, a mother, a friend. Someone who truly likes you. And what the news of the gospel is, because Jesus became fully human, and we just saw it in the passage, the King of kings and Lord of lords, he's not ashamed of you. He's not ashamed of you. And you know, especially if you've grown up in the church or if you've been in the church for a long time, I think sometimes, or if you're like me, when you think about Jesus, you know he loves you. It's one of the first things you learn about Jesus. But it's just kind of part of the gig. It's just kind of like what he has to do as the second member of the Trinity. And so you know he loves you, but he loves you in a kind of disappointing way, disappointed way. You know, he loves you as he always has to restrain his patience because you keep screwing up. But what Hebrews is telling you is that in Jesus Christ, you have a, you have a, you have a savior and a king. He loves you like a brother. 
And so how do you know that you are lovable? How do you know that if somebody were to see the deepest secret of who you are and would still love It's because you are somebody who's made in the image of God, who has made you for a purpose, and in addition to that purpose of being living for others and for his glory, you know you're lovable because you have a king who's not ashamed to call you his brother or sister. And so if you're here and you, know, you are checking things out, you don't follow Jesus, just a question that this passage is asking you is, what more could Jesus do or be for you? And the invitation is to come to him. And for those of you who do follow Jesus, um, just two applications here. I think in one sense, it, it can be really hard to be loved like this. Uh, but the invitation of Christ is just to do it and to come to him and enjoy being with him, maybe for the first time in a new way. And also what it means is it has such clear horizontal implications because I'm sure for each of you, you have, especially given the past year and a half that it's been, People in close circles that are just really hard to, to deal with, maybe people in your church. And if you have somebody who, while you are an enemy, has done and continues to do this for you as your present help in time of need, he invites you to do the same for other people. You can't be the king who saves them from death, but you can be a friend. You can act like a sibling who shows compassion. And so praise God we have someone who frees us, understands us, likes us and he's not ashamed to be our older brother and he has everything you need in this life and the next and he'll see you through. Let's pray. <clears throat> oh, Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for Jesus and I pray for every single person here that they will uh, to live in light of our glorious Savior. Thank you so much for him. Help us to remember that Jesus is alive and is with us even as we head out this Sunday afternoon after service and it's in his name we pray. Amen.